Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. What I've had on my mind lately is a rather sobering set of facts. We live today in a society that is very anti-confrontational for the most part. And if you get the anti-confrontational, often it's going to be your family, your business, whatever, or the company you work for, uh, you're also going to get a great deal of passive aggression. Or, on the opposite extreme of that, uh, more rarely, I think, you're going to have the kinds of families or organizations that are way over-the-top aggressive. Everybody is extremely convinced of their own opinion, their own point of view, and they're simply warring their bellicose with one another on a consistent basis. And it's like wolves constantly growling and barking at one another. And the question, of course, on my mind is why? Why do we have this kind of a circumstance? Some of you out there, very fortunately, might be an exception to this general rule. I am not. It's taken me a great deal of time to find a little pocket of my own society where this is not, in general, the case. So why is it that people are anti-confrontational, or another way of putting it is why are people so often not willing to talk about things that might be uncomfortable? Whether it be confronting somebody else about their own faults or even admitting their own. You could have, for example, a rather submissive wife or... Maybe submissive isn't the best term in modern days, but it applies here fairly well. She has something that she wants to ask her husband to do. She wants to bring something to him, but of course she's very hesitant to do it. Because she suspects that the moment she does, the husband is going to get rather belligerent and impatient and gruff. She doesn't want to face that, so she doesn't say anything. Or she does say something, but she says something very indirect and not to the point. And maybe she gets the desired response because she changed her tactics in such a way as to make whatever she said more palatable. But she made what she said more palatable in such a way that she had to leave out very important details. So then, of course, once the time comes around for the truth to inevitably come to the surface, then he gets angry then. And the whole situation blows up in her face anyway. The very thing she was trying to avoid comes right at her. Or you could have an example of two friends who have a dispute between them, but they don't really want to bring it to bear. Both of them know what knows what is going on. There's been some sort of a minor offense, perhaps, or something like that. They don't want to bring it to each, other, each other's attention, so maybe they just don't talk to each other and they try to hang out cordially, but the elephant is still in the room. And maybe in the course of time, they finally do start bringing it up, and both people are offended at this point why the other didn't bring it up until now, and at this point it's festered to the degree that anger has flared. Or it could be even worse. Maybe it's bad enough where the two friends simply choose not to bring it up in the first place, 
or sorry, not just not bring it up, but choose not even to engage with each other in the first place. They stop talking. And because of what could very well be an offense that could be reconciled, they simply cease being friends at all. They lose communication long enough that they simply fall away from one another. Why does this sort of thing happen? Well, going back to the example of the more submissive wife with her rather belligerent, sometimes belligerent husband, as I already mentioned, she's probably going to be rather leery of his reaction, of his response. And the problem with her issue is that she is absolutely correct, most likely. In fact, the way that it goes further down the road when he discovers what is the truth partially proves the point, but it also shows the problem on her end. She wasn't willing to be fully honest about the truth of the situation, maybe some request she had of him, but she didn't say everything that it entailed, that it entailed. So her problem, of course, was simply being dishonest from the get-go, and his problem is the one that is partially proved by his belligerence, by his anger down the road when he discovers the truth. He was probably actually going to be that way, even if she was fully honest right at the start. So we have problems, really, here at both ends. What we really have is a lack of maturity. She is not willing to be honest, so she's not essentially willing to be brave. She's not willing to take the heat of whatever might come if she's fully honest, or at very least just a bit of a gruff response. And he is not willing to think about not himself or his own inconvenience, whatever it might be, uh, his own interests in the moment, or his desire to do something other than what his wife is asking him to do. So he would, and let, let's just change the analogy, let's say that she is willing to bring it up right off the top. Well, if he gets gruff, if he gets belligerent, then he further proves the very reason for which the wife does not want to bring it up in the first place. She doesn't want that reaction. She wants him to do what she wants. She has some request, maybe something that takes height or the strength that she doesn't possess, but he does something like that. So she wants what it is done, but she doesn't know how to get it done without some sort of a mild quarrel. And if she is submissive, i.e. she's probably a more agreeable woman, which is pretty common, then she's not going to want even a minor quarrel. Now, this is where this attribute, agreeableness, comes to an unhealthy extreme, because at least some sort of confrontation, doesn't have to be quarrel, but some sort of confrontation, some sort of well, bringing up what the other person may not want to do in the moment, is necessary. And if you are so agreeable, and this, may, this doesn't just have to do with personality, it probably has to do with parentage and upbringing in general, an unprocessed trauma from that time, but if you are so agreeable, nonetheless, that you are unwilling to even bring up something uncomfortable, then the real question is how much in the course of time is never said at all. So what's going on here really is that there is selfishness on both ends, which is why I said earlier that this is really a problem of immaturity. And then between the two friends, the situation is roughly the same. Of course, it began with some manner of offense, but neither party really believes that they know how to talk about it. Now, 
This, by the way, is a lame duck excuse. The fact of the matter is, everybody knows deep down how to talk about these things. Because we live in a society that is so anti-confrontational or belligerent on the other end, means that we live in a society that very few people have had much experience with responsible conversation, confrontation, or argumentation in general. They have no idea how it actually looks, but we all know how to do it. We have to do the one thing we're most afraid to do. We have to bring it up honestly. We have to talk about whatever it is that we're going to talk about with no bias, as little bias as possible, right? No illusions, no aversions, no deflections. No blaming, no projections. Just as such, just raw. And I don't mean raw in the sense of being brash and rude. I just mean saying it. Just talking about whatever it is that you have on your mind. But again, this is this runs into the reason why most of us do not do this. Because we are afraid of the reaction. We don't want to encounter this fight that we pretty much always sense coming. The issue, as I said, is not this lame excuse of, I don't know how to have this conversation. It is, I do... Uh, there is partial truth in that, because what they're really saying is, what we're all really saying is, I don't know how to start this conversation or start this topic or bring up this point or this past offense without it blowing up in both of our faces. That is the real crux of the issue. If we had the ideal world where we both trusted each other with this information, with this conversation then we really wouldn't have an issue of not knowing how to bring it up. The only issue we would really have then is the issue that we all also have, which is the issue of being humble. The issue of really being honest and not having any strings attached, just bringing it up as such and trusting the other person. Trusting the other person takes humility, but it also takes character on the part of the listener. So... We live in this society where th relationships degrade, trust degrades, conversation degrades, and we all go further and further into this pit of mere sand and desperation and dryness because we don't talk about anything important. We don't bring up anything that might be a little bit uncomfortable. It's even worse when it comes to the political debate these days. These days, there's the gospel of wokeness. There's the rightness of all the causes and missions of the political elites and politically involved and connected. And if you dare say anything against it, even if it goes flatly against objective reality, you're going to be excommunicated. You're going to be thrown off Twitter. You're going to be thrown off Facebook. It's a horrible reality to live in. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the context of what's going on here. Now, on the part of the original speaker, if he or she is unwilling to say what is on their mind, if you really look at it in context, it is an insult right then and there to not be willing to bring it up. Because what you are saying is that the other person cannot be trusted to respond well to what you want to say. That's an insult. Now, it might be a correct insult in the sense of, yeah, like I said earlier, they're quite right. The other person will not respond very well to what they have to say. But this is a lack of integrity on the part of the speaker. 
Now, it's pretty obvious on the part of the hearer where the lack of integrity, where the immaturity comes in. Because they, too, are probably not going to deal with the situation as it actually is. They're going to deal with their own discomfort. They're going to deal with their own offense, maybe, or whatever it might be, typically with some sort of anger and aggression. And think about it. Anger and aggression is not something that people do when they are dealing with facts and arguments. Anger and aggression is what people do when they are defending something. That is what they are doing when they have to come to essentially fisticuffs. Otherwise, the consequences will be far more dire. And this, by the way, includes verbal as well as physical source of anger and violence. They both say the same thing. You're not arguing something, you're defending something. And what are you defending when you respond with anger and aggression? Well, again, it might be your own feelings, it might be your own biases, it might be your own image of your own innocence or integrity or whatever, your own justification. For those who have listened to a lot of these podcasts, you know that I bring up the fact that people want most, if they don't already have it, to be justified. So if your response to somebody bringing up something uncomfortable is anger and aggression, what you're really showing is that their original fears are right on the mark. The, the original fears of the speaker are that you are not, in fact, going to deal with the issue at hand at all. You're not going to respond. You're going to react. And then when you do that, you prove them right. So again, on both ends, there is a great deal of insult. There is not dealing with the issue at hand. And again, typically, when people in today's world bring up the difficult issue in the first place, they don't even bring it up honestly, because they're trying to dance around the fear that they have for bringing it up in the first place. They try to say it in a watered-down version, which may, again, in some cases, leave out extremely important details. So I hope I'm portraying fairly well what a huge and messy situation this really is in the end. And it seems at first blush that it's very complicated to figure out how to get around this, how to fix it, how to manage it. I'm here to tell you right now, it actually is not very difficult as far as saying it. Doing it, of course, is a great deal more difficult. I say of course because we all know the phrase, easier said than done. It is very difficult to do. But here it is. In short, well, I probably won't be too terse, but anyway... How do we engage with each other verbally when the situation is something that will cause discomfort almost certainly in a civil manner? The answer to that, in my opinion, is what I call the third party. Now, in any kind of a conversation, confrontation, argument, whatever, there may often be third parties involved. It might be a group conversation or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. The third party needs to be rationality. The third party needs to be objectivity, reality, the actual truth of the situation. And what I'm getting at is both people in any given conversation or argument or confrontation need to be fighting for not themselves and, by the way, not for the other person either, but for the third party. 
for the objective, rational reality. See, there is the other extreme of this issue where one of the people involved in the conversation always kowtows to the other party. They always give in to their demands, their desires, their preferences, and their point of view. Or at least as much as they possibly can until maybe they finally snap. And in doing this, are they actually helping the situation at all? Of course not. Because as we just established, that probably is some sort of a additional extreme adaptation to the fear of the belligerence of the other person. So what you are really doing is you are giving into immaturity, you are giving into bias, you are giving into selfishness on the part of the other person. You are, in the end, allowing yourself to be abused. Is that really going to help relationship in general? Is that going to help society in general? Of course not. Now, on the other hand, again, if both parties are fighting for objectivity, rationality, facts, and taking themselves as sufficiently as they can out of the equation, then a lot of these things clear up on a dime. Now, I'm not saying on a dime as in this is an easy adjustment to make and so on and so forth. It's going to take a great deal of practice and a great deal of concentration to submit ourselves to the third party. This is what a lot of Christians really do mean, and I don't mean it only means this, but this is part of what we mean when we talk about having Jesus or God be the third party in the argument. Some Christians do talk like that. And I think that that is a really great start. And if, by the way, Christians do submit to objective, factual reality and rationality, I would argue that we are submitting to Jesus. We are submitting to God because he is the author of all reality in general. He is the maker of all things that are. And that thing that is reality is certainly not just you or me in this conversation or argument or whatever. So we are submitting through the reality that he has made to him if we submit to it. Now, one of the initial arguments against this idea that I can almost immediately hear coming, in fact, I recently had a conversation about this with someone in person, and this was the first question that came up. What about those situations where the argument or the issue is clearly subjective? The very first thing brought up has to do not with anything that involves objective reality, but it involves opinion. It involves a perspective, a preference, perhaps. Maybe the way that the wife wants the house organized, and she wants her husband's help in doing so. Well, yes, at the bare, at the bare level, there is not an objective reality to be defined, because it may be completely subjective which color curtains you're going to get. So what? There is something objective going on. Do you know what it is? Each person's preference. That is something objective, at least in the sense that it exists. This person's preference and that person's preference actually exists. It's still not material. A preference for green is not a material thing, but it is a fact about a person's preference. So, if you're going to be fighting for the third person in that kind of a debate, maybe it's a argument, maybe it turns into one, because you have differing opinions. He wants red, she wants green. Maybe it's something like that. Well, instead of 
fighting for your own perspective and your own preference, why not finding out why the other person likes that color? Now, a lot of you might come at me, but nobody knows why they like this particular color, etc., etc. I'm not so sure about that. We live in an age of knowledge. For example, we know that green, visually speaking, increases the sense of peace, a sense of order, a sense of solemnitude when we look at green. When we look at red, we have a tendency to increase in passion. We have a tendency to increase maybe even in aggression, which does perhaps have some connection with the whole bowl thing, but I don't think so. I think they're actually colorblind. But as far as human beings, we know that we do actually have psychological reactions to looking at a particular color. So we might be able to talk about that. Or maybe we could talk about the fact that when she, the wife, was a child, this very this particular object she was extremely fond of happened to be green. And for him, maybe there was some object that he loved when he was little that happened to be red. There is some connection, more than likely, to the reason why we have these preferences. And we can, instead of trying to fight for our own perspective, fight, if you will, or ask questions, be curious, to find out why the other person prefers this color. But then when it comes to situations that do have to do with objective reality, if we base what we are talking about on the search for the third party, we are trying to ascertain what is true. It doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. What it does mean is that it will take our ego out of the situation. If you're not fighting for the other to win, and if you're not fighting for yourself to win, you are fighting for the third party, objective rational reality, to be the winner, so to speak, what you find the most through the course of your conversation. Then you can both win. Again, much easier said than done, absolutely. But just consider it for a moment. Consider that you can come to your friend or spouse or whatever with something that is uncomfortable. And you know that both of you are immediately going to be clicked into, I am going to continue this conversation in search of the truth. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to ask questions if necessary. And hopefully, I mean, questions are a good indication of curiosity and interest in the other person or in the truth. Why do you have this opinion? What facts do you have? What knowledge do you have, perhaps? Or why do you have this opinion? Why do you have this preference? That is more in indicative of the search for truth. And you will mutually be searching for what is true. And when you come out at the end of it, one of you may have, ha have had to lay down a few ideas and a few maybe preferences or something like that if one party was a little further from the truth. But that's not really the matter of question. Nobody wins or loses in these situations. You both win because you both come closer to truth. You have become allies because neither of you are fighting just for yourselves, your own biases, your own ego, your own opinions. Now, there is, of course, a further issue. 
And this is an even deeper trouble and challenge in finding a way, in finding your way to having good and constructive confrontations and arguments. And that is the simple question of whether or not both parties are actually willing to do that. This is troublesome. And this is where prices may very well have to be paid to get here. Or shall I say to get there, to get to reasonable conversations. Where we're not anti-confrontational, where we're not passive-aggressive. And by the way, really briefly, passive aggression is manipulation. Think about it. When you are passive aggressive, when you are indirect, when you use manipulation, or sorry, when you use projection, deflection, and even bribery to try to get somebody to do what you want, then what you are really doing is you are trying to get them to do something that you want without telling them directly what it is that you want. Think about it. Anything less than presenting exactly what you want and how you want it is manipulative. It may, If you are willing to bring it up exactly how it is, how you want it, etc., then yes, you may not get exactly how you want it, but you are at least not lying. You are not being indirect. You are not manipulating. Passive aggression is manipulation. I just wanted to touch on that briefly. I don't want to go much more into detail. Because we were just talking about finding, or sorry, finding out whether or not the other, both parties are willing to fight for the third party. And some people who are currently in relationship with us today not only are not willing, but may never be willing. And this is something that I have had to come to. Now, some people can be worked in that direction. And I don't mean worked as if we can make them do it. That's the point. We can't make them do it. Otherwise, again, we're being passive-aggressive and manipulative. You can't make anybody do this. What you can do is start doing it yourself, which, by the way, is the most necessary first step for anyone and everyone always. You have to do this first. And then you get to see if other people are willing to join you. If they are not, what do you do? Well, in my opinion, you stop communicate, you stop relationship with them. I don't mean entirely necessarily, but to the degree that you do not have to deal with them so much and you start having relationships with relationships with people who are willing to do this. Because this is a very central, very core aspect of mature and responsible relationships. This is not something that we can just scoot on by with. Many people do, and they suffer for it. The relationships continuously break down. Trust continues to erode until it completely dismantles. My opinion is that when you encounter, when you are with people who are not only not willing to do this, but even when you have grown in integrity, have given up excuses, have stopped manipulating and being anti-confrontational and passive-aggressive or over-belligerent and brash and egotistical, and the other person responds with a mere continuance of aggression, of manipulation, 
and so on, then they've shown you their hand. Now, I personally do not write anyone off entirely. I don't believe that people aren't capable of change. I do believe that if people show you, again, with no real good excuse for doing so and for continuing to do so, that they are unwilling, at least in this moment, to be reasonable with you, then the right thing to do, the just thing to do, is to begin turning your back. You start setting up boundaries. We just had an earlier podcast about this. You stop treating this person as your friend. If that is at all possible. They need to see the error of their actions. Justice is not merely an I- the idea of giving somebody their comeuppance. If you love the other person, justice is one of the final ditch efforts to try to convince them to repent, try to convince them to change, try to convince them to give up excuses. I was just listening to a podcast by one of my teachers who talked about the fact that maturity begins when you come to the end of your excuses. You stop deflecting, you stop projecting, projecting, and you deal with reality. You deal with the core truth as much as you are able to do so. If the other person is absolutely unwilling to do it, then for you to turn your back is for you to do the next necessary step in encouraging them to do the right thing. Now, you may hate doing it. You don't like turning away from people. You don't like ceasing to treat people as your friends. But if you really do love them, if you really are being a friend to them, and you have already taken the steps towards having integrity and honesty, and they refuse, then it is the honest thing to do. And if you have taken those first initial steps and become honest in your own life and in your own conversation, then I guarantee you're going to already be attracting people of like-mindedness. You're already going to be attracting people into your life who are willing to be honest and rational and so on. Who are willing to fight for the third party in any confrontation or argument. And it's not, I'm not saying it's a shoo-in. It takes time, it takes learning. But they'll come. I say this because I've experienced this. I, for whatever reason, was the one person in my environment, and I don't, and I don't mean the only one, but I was one of the people in my environment who was not willing to give in to all this passive-aggressive, anti-confrontational crap. I'm not saying that I didn't give in to it. I sure did. When you're a child and you're in that kind of an environment, you think it's right to be anti-confrontational. You think it's right to use manipulation and passive aggression instead of just being forthright with people. But I began to see how it erodes things. I began to see how it breaks down trust. And the more I engaged with honesty, the more I learned, the more I figured out how to simply be raw, if you will, the more I have pushed away the disingenuous and untrustworthy and drawn in the trustworthy and mature. And again, I want to stress the fact that if you are already in an environment where you have passive aggression and anti-confrontation, and they're unwilling, at least at this time, to change, 
for you to do that, for you to reward the people with your relationship who have integrity and to start making boundaries and setting up boundaries boundaries with people who are unwilling to do so, you are starting to do the maximum that you possibly could to change the society where people do not know how to have honest conversations about important things. So that's all I had on my mind today. I hope you have all found it very interesting and hopefully very helpful. Signing off for today.